Good morning again. The passage that uh, Mary Kay read for us this morning might remind you of a very familiar Christmas song. Does anybody know that song? Can you name that song? Huh? We Three Kings, right. We Three Kings of Orient are, bearing gifts we traverse afar, field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. That's a great song, isn't it? However, I do have some bad news about it. Uh, There is a problem with that song, and that is that the three kings that are being referred to in that song are actually not kings at all. That song is inaccurate, which is shocking, isn't it? And uh, I hope that that does not ruin your Christmas. Uh, Those three kings are actually wise men who were, uh, in truth, called magi. Now, uh, some good news. These magi, even though they were not actually kings, they were still very, very important people. Uh, They probably were from a place called Mesopotamia, which is situated in modern-day Iraq. And interestingly enough, these were pagan men who studied astrology and dreams and magic and who also served as very high-ranking advisors uh, to kings. They weren't kings themselves, but they advised kings. And apparently what, what had happened to set up this passage is that between their celestial observation of this very strange and unique star and their knowledge of some of the prophecies from the Old Testament in the Bible, including a man named Micah who talked about a great ruler being born in Bethlehem who would shepherd his people. And another Old Testament prophet named Balaam who described a star and a great royal scepter rising out of Israel. These wise men apparently concluded that a very, very important and special birth had taken place. And so they responded by putting together a delegation of at least three magi and they set out to investigate by following this extraordinary and supernatural star, which led them to Bethlehem. They arrived and were able to welcome the newborn king, and they gave him gifts of gold and of spices. And that's the story that we have for us this morning. Now, these these wise men, they stir up a lot of questions for us. They're very intriguing and kind of mysterious people. But This morning, I don't want to to focus so much on these three so-called kings, but instead I want to focus on three other kings that are actually uh, that share a connection with uh, this passage here today. We're going to look at these not the wise men so much, but these other three kings. And here's why I want to look at these three kings this morning. The reason is because the times that we live in are very, very difficult and uncertain, right? We all know that. Every time we turn on the news or we read the, the headlines online or on a newspaper, uh, we, we all recognize that, that we live in times that often feel very scary. And strange as it might sound, I really believe with all of my heart that what the world needs right now more than anything else is one of these three kings that we're going to talk about this morning. Well, the first king that I want to consider in this passage is King Herod. And in my mind, I've kind of labeled King Herod as the corrupt king. Uh, When you read this text, 
Don't uh, the things that, that Herod says and does just seem a little bit creepy? You know why that is? It's because he was kind of creepy himself. Um, now, he was not without his good qualities, and I suppose most creepy people have a good uh, aspect to them, uh, but he actually had a lot of good qualities. Herod uh, was appointed king of the Jews by the Caesar in 37 BC, and history tells us that he was actually an incredibly gifted politician. Not only that, he was a very impressive builder and administrator, and in spite of the heavy taxes that he imposed on the people, he managed Israel very, very successfully. And in fact, in some ways, he seems like just the kind of guy that everyone would want to be in power. But power, of course, has a way of corrupting people, and Herod was tremendously power-hungry. And not only that, he was a very, very paranoid ruler. Uh, He had good reason to be paranoid, actually. And the reason for that was that he himself was not Jewish. He was from a place called Edom. And what that meant was that he could never be accepted as the king over Israel because he was not in the line of David. And so all of the people considered him to be an illegitimate king. And as a result of that, Herod lived in constant fear that he was going to be overthrown. Now, that fear later in life was exaggerated by an illness that he came down with. And this uh, brought him even more anxiety. And it intensified his tendencies towards jealousy and cruelty and, and violence. And there are stories of Herod that are so wicked that if I told them to you today, you'd probably say, really, Paul? Did you have to tell us that on Christmas Eve? You already ruined Christmas once just a few minutes ago. Are you really going to do that again? So I'm not going to tell you, but you can read ahead, and there's there's one of them that you will find shortly after this passage. But anyway, I'm sure that you can see why this news of a great king being born in Israel would feel threatening to Herod. And you can probably understand why he would want to snuff him out rather than allow him to grow up into a big flame. Well, nobody wanted Herod to be their king, right? And and just like nobody today wants to be ruled by a ruthless and corrupt dictator. And yet what can happen is kings like Herod can become very powerful because they rule by fear and force. And so by, in so many ways, what is set up in this passage is so interesting because it's a conflict between two kings. One king who is corrupt and another king who is unlike any king who's ever been born. A, a king who is unique and different and special And the wise men are caught in between these two kings and forced to make a choice. And we'll get there in a few minutes. But before we do, there's another king whose uh, shadow falls over this passage, you might say. Now, this uh, second king was born many years before and is actually not directly connected to this passage. However, there is an event that occurred in this king's life that seems to foreshadow and anticipate what we just read this morning. I want you to remember something, and that is that the the big story of the Bible that is weaved through every chapter all throughout the book from the first page to the last is the story of Jesus. 
And the Old Testament was written in part to prepare us for what the New Testament would eventually deliver to us, and that is Christ. And so all throughout the Old Testament, what you find are hints and shadows of the Son of God who was to come. And one of those hints and shadows, I believe, is found in the life of a king named Solomon. Now, Solomon, as I said, lived about a thousand years before Herod, and he was the son of the greatest king in the Old Testament, King David. But when David and, and when David died and the kingdom passed along to Solomon, his son, the Bible tells us that Solomon, this new king, had an incredible start. He was a man who loved the Lord with all of his heart, and he walked faithfully before God. And God was so impacted by this that as a result, he he appeared before Solomon, and and he said to Solomon, "I, I will give you anything that you might ask for. You name it, and you've got it. And Solomon, the Bible tells, gave tells us gave God an incredibly humble, selfless answer. Uh, He didn't ask for money or for fame or for power. He he didn't try the old genie trick of asking for a thousand more wishes. Uh, Instead, what he did is, is he sort of evaluated his own limitations. And he realized that he was just a young man and that it was going to be terribly difficult for him to rule this kingdom. And so he asked God for wisdom that he might be a good king and that he might serve the people with this wisdom faithfully. And God was so impressed that he didn't just give him that thing that he had asked for, wisdom. He gave him all the other things that he, that he didn't ask for too, except for the wishes. He didn't get the wishes. Um, but it was under the rule of Solomon that the nation of Israel reached its absolute peak in power and in prominence. If you told me that I could go back into the Old Testament and live at any time that I wanted to for a year, I would not hesitate a bit to go back and live underneath the rule of Solomon in Jerusalem. It was an incredible time in history. Solomon ruled his people with such wisdom and discernment, and during his reign, he accomplished so much. Uh, He wisely was able to navigate through some thorny problems and difficulties. He built an absolutely magnificent temple in Jerusalem. He he wrote many of the Psalms and the Proverbs that we read today and and mean so much to uh, many of us. And he directed and managed uh, the, the country of Israel to incredible prominence. The economy boomed underneath his rule. In fact, Solomon himself is likely the richest man who ever lived. Uh, Someone did the math and estimated that in gold alone, okay, this is just Solomon's gold, over the 40 years that he reigned, he earned about $30 billion in today's dollars. Okay, that that approaches Bill Gates' level, and, and that's just in gold. Uh, Not only that, but he had hundreds of chariots, thousands of horses. He had a fleet of ships that he would send out into the world, and they would return every three years with astonishing treasures. Uh, He built a lavish palace, and and the center of it was a great throne that was made out of ivory, uh, overlaid with gold. 
And the Bible tells us that all of the drinking vessels in his palace were gold. Nothing at all was made out of silver. And the reason for that is, the Bible says that in silver, uh, that, that in that day, silver had no value to anyone. It, it says that there was so much silver that it was just as common as stone. And, and you can read about Solomon's life. It's incredible Uh, God said that there would be no king who ever compared to him, and I believe that that is absolutely true. But perhaps even more than his riches and wisdom and prosperity, what was so great about Solomon was that he was a leader that the people could be proud of. In fact, kings from all over the world, we're told, would travel great distances to see Solomon just to Uh, see for themselves the splendor of his kingdom and hear all of his wisdom. But there's one visit in particular that the Bible focuses on interestingly, and that is the visit of a very famous woman who is called the Queen of Sheba. And she came personally to visit Solomon and experience him and all of this kingdom and When she had spent some time with Solomon, the following is recorded in the book of 1 Kings chapter 10. You don't need to turn there this morning. I'll read a few verses for you. It says in in verse 4, And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the report until I came and with my own eyes have seen it. And behold, the half that was not told to me, your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set on your on, excuse me and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Hmm. Now, think about this for just a minute. Do you see a connection between the event that we just read about here, this visit from the queen of Sheba and... That event that happened a thousand years later when those wise men went to visit Jesus. In both of those cases, what you have is a king that is so great, so spectacular and impressive that very important people travel very great distances to bring him very valuable gifts, including gold and precious spices. The visit from the queen of Sheba seems to kind of echo this future visit that will happen of the Magi. Now, what is this echo all about? 
why does there seem to be this sort of subtle connecting thread between the queen of Sheba's visit and the visit of the wise men? Well, if it's true that the Old Testament is written to prepare us for what the New Testament delivers, that is Christ, how does the life of Solomon point us to him? Well, here's what I I think. I think that the story of Solomon is meant to stir up within us a longing for a leader like Solomon. I think the story of Solomon is meant to stir up within us someone who leads us and, and who, like Solomon, can be trusted and celebrated, a leader that we can be proud of. Someone who will finally rule with the people's interests at heart, not just his own. Uh, Somebody who is incredibly wise and competent and good, but also strong and capable and able. Uh, Someone who can usher in for us the, the, the time of peace and prosperity that we all want so bad. Someone who can finally unite us and bring about a sense of national pride and power And somebody who finally, unlike Herod, isn't corrupt. Someone who who corruption hasn't touched. Now, we live today, as I said, in incredibly difficult, troubling times. And I really believe that within all of us, we too have a longing for a leader like Solomon. I think this is especially true during seasons of elections, Uh, I think every four years or so, the entire nation turns its attention to searching for a leader who can make those things that are wrong in our country right, a person who can unify us all together and steer us back in the direction that uh, we individually feel is on track, somebody who can come along and save the world, so to speak. And, And what inevitably happens every four years, as we all know, that in spite of the fact that uh, every time around people finally feel like they found their man or they found their woman, the one who will finally do it, the, the problems just never seem to get solved, do they? And so what we do is just kind of wait around another four years and hope for the best with the next guy. There's a really interesting book that came out a couple of years ago called uh, The Fractured Republic. Um, it was written just by a secular author and one of the themes in this book is that the in, is the influence of uh, nostalgia in American politics. Uh, the author believes that there is a tendency among Republicans to look back to the 1980s uh, during the administration of Ronald Reagan with a kind of homesick wistfulness, and that for the Democrats. He feels that they do the same thing looking back to the 60s, to uh, JFK. And he says that what each group is thinking is, oh, man, if only we could find somebody who was like that, somebody who could bring us back to the good times in the 60s or the 80s, someone who could lead the way that they led, then finally life would be good again. But what the author goes on to do is he points out that neither the 60s or the 80s were as good as we all remember them. 
he, he, he goes through some of the significant problems and issues and hurdles that the country was facing at that time. And, and yet still he says that we have this sense that, that our, our problems could be solved if we could just find a leader like that again. And I think that the, the reign of Solomon turned out actually to be a lot like that. The first half of Solomon's rule was incredible. And uh, it was just like we would think, tremendously hopeful and exciting and and promising. But unfortunately, what the story of Solomon teaches us in part is that even the wisest man in all of the world was not immune to corruption. And if you read through Solomon's life, you'll find that later on, he becomes absolutely ensnared by his own greed and his own pride, and especially by women. And the the great and mighty Solomon, the wisest and richest of all kings who've, who've ever lived, what we find is he slowly begins to turn away from God. And in the end, it turns out that his wisdom was no match for his impulses and his temptations. And in the end, what happens is that God judges him and this glorious kingdom almost immediately upon his death falls apart. And you have to understand, when you go to read this story, it feels like Solomon has has built Camelot. And then it all just collapses and crumbles. What this story of Solomon does is it kind of takes us on a little bit of a roller coaster ride. It, it, It draws out of us this sense of longing for a king like him who could bring about a kingdom like that. And then the next thing you know, the cart just comes unhinged from the track and crashes onto the sidewalk because the wisest and the richest and the greatest king who had ever lived was not good enough. And Solomon did not end up being the leader that everyone was looking for. And when you read about the life of Solomon, What you're meant to sort of ask yourself is the same thing that they were asking themselves, which is, if Solomon didn't work out, where are we possibly going to find someone who's a better king than him? If Solomon, of all people who was granted supernatural wisdom, couldn't hold these things together, then who could? Now, do you see how the Old Testament prepares us for what the New Testament delivers. And that is in many ways what this passage does. It delivers to us a new and a final king. Well, I want you to fast forward about a thousand years now. We'll leave uh, Solomon behind and go back to the days of Herod. And there we find the three wise men who, just like that queen of Sheba, have traveled far in search of a king and who arrived to find Jesus. Now, at this point, contrary to popular thought, uh, Jesus was, was uh, two years old, and he was no longer living in the cave or in the inn or in the uh, side house of an inn or something like that, but he was living in a home with Mary and Joseph. He had upgraded his manger to a toddler bed by the time the wise men arrived. 
And so these three wise men, of course, refuse the demands of King Herod. And instead, they come and present themselves with bended knee before this child, this uh, toddler king. And the passage tells us that they worshipped him. Like the queen of Sheba, Jesus took their breath away. And after that, they reached back into their saddles and they brought out these treasures that they had carried with them for many, many months, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And these treasures are very interesting, aren't they? I read a joke. Somebody said that if these wise men were women, they wouldn't have brought gold and frankincense and myrrh. They would have brought a hot meal and some diapers and... uh, Uh, there's sort of a point to be made there. These are not treasures that really make much sense, are they? Well, it's interesting. There are some who believe that uh, these treasures had great significance and that each one of these treasures told us and tells us something about Jesus. And I'd like to just sort of move to the end of my message by, by sharing this with you. It's quite interesting. The first thing that they presented uh, Jesus with, of course, was gold. And obviously, gold is a very precious metal that is of great value and is perfectly suitable as a gift to a king. Kings loved gold, right? Solomon was a great example of that himself. And so this gold may have been highlighting the royalty of Jesus. He was that great ruler that Micah had predicted who would be born in Bethlehem to shepherd his people. And he was a Balaam scepter rising out of Israel. This gold proclaimed that Jesus was the rightful king in the line of David. The second gift that they gave him was something called frankincense. And frankincense is actually a a resin that is obtained from the bark of a tree. And in the Old Testament, it was used primarily in the worship of God. And, And so many people see this gift as pointing not only to the kingship of Christ, but also to his divinity, that he was divine, that this was no mere man. Uh, The Bible teaches that at the incarnation, the Son of God became a real person, a baby boy. And if that blows your mind, that's okay, because it blows mine too. It, It should. We can't fully understand that or wrap our minds around that. But what the Bible teaches is that when Jesus did this, he did not cease to be God anymore. When Jesus became a man, he didn't give up his divinity. In fact, not a single aspect of his divine nature was reduced or subtracted from him in any way. Instead, the Bible teaches that Jesus added something to himself. He added humanity. And it wasn't just some sort of a partial humanity. Jesus wasn't just God in sort of a human shell. But the Bible teaches that he became flesh and blood, that he became heart and soul, and that he was as much a human being as the person is who is sitting next to you this morning. And that now at the incarnation of Christ, Jesus was both fully God, 100%, and he was fully man, 100%. He had changed forever. And we have to ask ourselves, Why would Jesus do that? 
Why would God take such a drastic and dramatic sense uh, step? If God wanted to save us and rescue us, why not send somebody else? Why not send a great leader like Solomon? And the answer, of course, is because Solomon failed. Solomon failed miserably. Solomon, the best and greatest king who had ever lived, couldn't do it, and neither could any other human leader. And the reason is that the problems of this world outweigh the best of us, the most capable of us, the most competent of all of us. And what the world needs is something substantially better than all of us, someone who is more than just a mere man or a mere woman. What the world needs most is God himself. And so God himself volunteered himself for the world. That is an amazing truth. Now, why did he do that? What was his purpose in that? Well, I think the final gift hints at the answer to that question. The last gift that the wise men gave was the gift of myrrh. Now, myrrh was a spice that was used for embalming. Okay, let that sink in for just a second. This was the spice of death. And myrrh symbolized bitterness and suffering and loss. Not a very cheerful baby gift, don't you think? Well, one of the things that the Bible makes crystal clear is this, that Jesus was born to die. Jesus was born to die. In fact, one other thing that that myrrh was used for is it was used in a drink. It, It would be mixed with wine to form a, a, a drink. And in fact, the book of Mark records for us that just, because, just before he was crucified, that Jesus was offered this drink of, of wine mixed with myrrh, which he refused. So what you find is this, this myrrh, this symbol of death, right at the beginning of Jesus' life. And you find it right at the end. Why is that? Well, Jesus taught that The problems of this world were so deep and great that they could not be solved by governments or rulers or presidents or kings, not even those of the quality of Solomon. And he said that because man's greatest problem, Jesus taught, was not an external one. It was not the stuff that's around us that's coming at us, but Jesus taught it was an internal one. That man's greatest problem lies embedded in each person's heart. And that the brokenness of the world around us is only a reflection of the brokenness that is inside of us. And the Bible teaches that the only remedy for so great a problem as what lies inside the human heart is a solution through which only God himself can provide. No person can do it. And that is why Jesus was born to die. In our place, he came. To die in our place. To die for our sins on the cross so that all of mankind's trespasses against God could be reckoned with and accounted for so that human hearts could be forgiven and and redeemed and restored. And and so that a, a genuine, heartfelt relationship and friendship with God could be enjoyed and celebrated for each person who believes so that a a true and lasting kingdom that won't fall apart like Solomon 
could be granted to all who would receive it. And as I said, I'll I'll say it one more time. The times that we live in today are very uncertain, very discouraging, very challenging, and oftentimes very scary. And the truth is that just like those wise men, all of us are caught between kings. Those human kings like Herod who are corrupt and self-serving. Those better kings who are like Solomon have so much promise, but eventually let us down. And then there's that third and final king, King Jesus, the king of Christmas. The one who is the royal scepter, who rose out of Israel, the son of God who became flesh and blood. And what Jesus invites each of us to do this Christmas is to crown him king. And the Bible teaches us that he is not only the king that we need, but he really is the kind of king that we ought to want like no other. And I hope you will crown him in your heart this Christmas. Let's pray. Father, I want to just uh, begin praying to you by admitting to you how quickly we can move to crown anyone but Christ as king. Sometimes we look to human leaders or human wisdom to somehow solve the problems in life that we face that are ahead of us. Sometimes we look towards ourselves and and we desire to be our own kings and to do things our, our own way. And yet this book that you've given us is constantly pulling us towards both the problem that we can't solve our own issues and also to the solution, which is that we don't have to. We thank you uh, so much, and we praise you today that you have sent your son into this world, not just to be a great teacher and to tell us how we might straighten things out and get our acts together, but who came into this world to die so that we might be forgiven of our sins. We pray today that as we move even closer towards Christmas, we pray that uh, just as, as Mary did, that we would celebrate who you are and what you've done and that we would magnify you in our hearts. We know that we have a tendency to see you as much smaller than you are. But change that in, in us, we pray. We thank you for those wise men who moved away from Herod and move towards King Jesus. And we pray that in our hearts and in our lives that we would do the same. In Jesus' name.